We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of August 30th, 2021. The Crosstown Cup is back on the south side as the Chicago White Sox win the season series against their inner city rival, the Chicago Cubs. For the first time since 2016, the White Sox offense broke out in big ways in two of the games and the return of Yasmani Grandal may have fueled the six-run comeback this past Friday night. We'll chat about Grandal's return and how he helps bolster the offense that might finally be at full strength. But not everything was rosy this weekend. Cubs starting pitcher Alec Mills almost threw a complete game shutout against the White Sox on Saturday. And the Cubs really beat up Dallas Keuchel and Lance Lynn. How much does Saturday's performance for Lynn hurt his Cy Young chances? And is Dylan Cease now a late entry into the Cy Young conversation? We'll discuss the White Sox starting pitcher Cy Young chances later in the show. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me now is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. I got bad news. You've got a lot of rain coming your way. Thanks to Hurricane Ida and for our fellow White Sox fans that live down in New Orleans and other parts of Louisiana and Mississippi, we are thinking about you and hopefully the weather dies down soon enough so you guys can recover. Yeah, it's uh, you know, seeing the videos and photos so far of what's happening down there has been brutal and in, in, in Tennessee. Uh, about an hour west of here, there was a town that got 17 inches of rain and had uh, you know, more than a dozen deaths because of that alone. So I'm hoping, you know, local to you know my situation, Tennessee, Nashville probably will be fine. But hour west is where they really got nailed with rain not too long ago. So I know they're already reeling. So to have a second catastrophic event would really just be, you know, just, you know, more than they could take. So hopefully, you know, along with New Orleans that the uh, community in Waverly also is able to uh, you know endure it because yeah, it's the early returns are pretty awful. And for 
White Sox fans, those that are part of our Sox Machine community, if you guys are down there uh, and you need help, you know, definitely reach out. We had one of our followers, Jim Hitless Wonder, tweeted at us uh, that they were able to get out of New Orleans and they evacuated to Houston. Uh, said that a five-hour drive took 13 hours, uh, but they were able to get out of New Orleans. That's good news. And again, we're hoping that the hurricane dies down soon and allows everyone to return and recover as soon as possible. So we are definitely thinking about you guys and we'll see as the hurricane continues to go more inland in the United States, if that impacts obviously Jim who's in Nashville and impacts the upcoming games this week for the Chicago White Sox as obviously whenever there's a Gulf uh, Mexico hurricane, uh, we often get a lot of rain in the Midwest from that hurricane. So We'll see if that impacts as far as the games this upcoming week for the White Sox as the Pittsburgh Pirates come into town. All right, so let's talk about what happened this past weekend, Jim. The return of Yasmani Grandal. That in itself is great news. And I wrote about it on SoxMachine.com. The, the difference of the catching performance for the White Sox while Yasmani Grandal was around and after Grandal got hurt. And it, it, it's pretty drastic, and having him back is uh, obviously great. And I thought that he would have a slow, as far as return, because he had a slow April with his knee injury from spring training. So I, I figured he'd be slow out of the gate this weekend. And boy, I was wrong. Six for 12, three home runs, 10 RBIs, he only walked once. What's the deal, Yaz? Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but what a weekend for a Grandal, Jim. Yeah, I, I noticed that he was really aggressive in, in, in a good way. Like he wasn't chasing things. He wasn't like Eloy Jimenez was aggressive when he was swinging at two-thirds of the pitches. But he was ready to attack. He was swinging early at strikes and count when he had a uh, feeling or anticipation of where a pitcher might be attacking him, like the homer that he hits uh on Friday was like basically like an inch or so off the plate inside, but he's able to get around on it and keep it fair. So I think he had a, just a, a good feeling of, um, you know, I guess his power, his bat speed, uh, his swing being locked in. Also, I just had a good sense of being able to take, uh, you know, take control of moments when they present themselves. Like he was aggressive when he popped up, when he had the bases loaded his first time up, he came through with a three run homer a second time. Like he was ready to, to have a moment like that. And fortunately for the Cubs pitching staff, they provided plenty of opportunities to, to be a hero. So uh, that might be part of it too, is just facing the right pitching staff to help reintroduce uh, you know, himself against major league pitching, because, you know, based on the composition of the Cubs pitching staff, uh, a lot of their pitching is not maybe major league pitching, you know, when for a team that's actually trying to contend versus where the Cubs just shed all their talent and basically are just trying to end the season. Still, I, I get, I get that point that it's the Cubs and they're not very good. So yeah, Grundahl should have had a big weekend, but it's been a while since Grundahl has been back in the majors and he hit well uh, in his rehab stints with Birmingham and Charlotte. It's just, it's not a lot of games as far as him trying to get, you know, ramped up and the way that he looked this weekend, it's like he didn't miss any time because uh, he had a monster June. Yeah, he looked confident. Um, it was funny the uh, how his rehab stint ended with, uh, I think it was a four-strikeout game, and then he got uh, ejected after his first plate appearance. And 
I was in North Carolina the past week and I was watching the umpiring. I was was sitting behind the plate for at least a lot of the games. Um, I was bouncing around the park to take some photos too, but I, I ended up sitting behind the plate a lot and just seeing how susceptible minor league umpires are to framing. Um, you know, there are, there are a lot of, uh, you know, generous, uh, strike calls on pretty, you know, substantial glove movement or mitt movement from, you know, pulling like say a pitch from a, a slider, uh, you picture like a right-hand slider dipping low and outside and seeing that catcher just like yank it back into play. Like the strike zone seems pretty expansive or, you know, with the right catcher behind the plate, you know, just could be pretty warped. So I could see Grandal, somebody like him being frustrated the way we heard that like Zach Collins had a tendency to let uh, too many at bats in the umpire's hands when he was in Birmingham and like struggling before he got to Charlotte. So that, that was just, that came to mind watching, you know, some of these strike calls go against uh, some White Sox prospects and, and the other way, like seeing some, uh, some White Sox prospect pitchers getting strike calls. But Back in the major leagues, probably, you know, with major league umpires who he knows and, and, you know, just kind of understands the parameters of generally what's a strike in a ball. Yeah, that might have made him just feel more confident about what's going on. So with Grandal back and Aloy Jimenez and Luis Roberts still raking since their returns off the injured list, is this White Sox offense finally back at full strength? Pretty much. I mean, right now it's maybe just a little bit too much Larry Garcia. But other than that, you know, that, you know, with him just being Tim Anderson rotating in and out, Adam Engel, you know, waiting for him to just kind of be back. Uh, I, I think that's really when the White Sox are back entirely. But I mean, they can win with this. Uh, if that's what you're asking, like, is this an offense they can take into the postseason with confidence? I think so. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, with the Larry Garcia, he's having better at bats. Mm-hmm. He had a really good series in Toronto. That was something that was lost in the shuffle with the White Sox splitting that series against the Blue Jays. Is that Garcia went 6-4-11 uh, against the Blue Jays. He had three consecutive multi-hit games. So I know that we rag on Louis Garcia, but he has been hitting better. But I do agree, Jim, that at full strength, Adam Engel is healthy and Larusa in right field has a platoon situation with Brian Goodwin and Adam Engel that if the White Sox do face any tough lefties that Adam Engel is available whether to start against a starting left-hander or if a lefty reliever comes out and you know Goodwin spots coming up in the order that you could have that easy transition of having Adam Engel come off the bench to face that left-handed pitcher then I think the White Sox are at 100% full strength as far as their offense in 2021 uh, but man, I mean, just what we saw on Friday, they were down six to nothing. So I was hosting a party. I had my friends from San Diego and they brought their three kids. It was the first opportunity we could meet two of them. And one of them's a big Cubs fan. And they're like, oh my gosh, that's all I heard. And I'm thinking, oh, the White Sox, they're raking the first inning. And then he obviously is bragging. The Cubs are up six to nothing. So I went to the rooftop. To hang out and then <laughs> I throw myself off. <laughs> yeah. Then I'm starting to see fireworks from the distance. And then I put the game on my tablet and yeah, things changed in a hurry. And I guess when the offense is clicking like this, even it, even if it is the Chicago Cubs, I guess if the White Sox dig themselves a big hole early on that now with this offense compared to what we saw in May, June, 
and most of July where the White Sox were banking on the new faces to have really explosive starts with the White Sox, you know, just catch on fire for two weeks. Now this is the offense that if the White Sox were to go down three or four runs early, that you could be confident as a fan that there's enough firepower to come back from that deficit. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, when they had Alec Miller shut him down the second game, maybe brought to mind some of those uh, performances from like the early aughts White Sox where, uh, you know, with Frank Thomas and Paul Canerco and Magalie Ordonez and Carlos Lee, like they could put up huge double-digit run totals and then be shut down by Joe Mays or whoever. But, uh, you know, the way they rebounded on Sunday just kind of brought to mind like the idea that, yeah, it is – a stronger offense and an offense that can hit the ball out of the park. I know that you've been mentioning on Twitter and on the podcast in many places that uh, home runs are so vital to what the White Sox, you know, or what every major league team is trying to do. And the White Sox are no exception to that. So when they have the firepower to lead, you know, basically all of baseball and homers uh, over the last basically two months, uh, they're in a pretty good spot. So just, you know, they have the tendency, I think, to, you know, hit ground balls and maybe can be lulled into a ground balling game or two, but they have more firepower now. They have more extra base power now. They have like the kind of extra base power to where even if it isn't a homer, at least it gets them out of the double play situations. Cause I think that's the other thing is like, you know, when, when they have to settle for singles, you know, ground balls through the infield and then they can't move up because another ground baller or uh, ground ball erases them. I think that's the issue. But when you have like a, an offense that can, you know, split gaps, you know, uh, slice one down the line, get to second without, uh, you know, worrying about what the hitter behind them does, where a ground ball is perhaps productive, you know, whether it moves a guy up or gets through the infield and scores a runner. Like there, there, I think there's more the White Sox can do with even maybe their offensive shortcomings when they have that kind of power and can get to second base or even third base, uh, without, uh, you know, help from either the defense or just, you know, kind of, hoping you know the ground ball goes inside the bags versus uh, up the middle ball in air jim yep ball in air we need t-shirts because i'm gonna that's that's the slogan ball in air get the ball off the ground <laughs> and good things will happen especially for this white Sox offense especially hitting a guarantee ray field what we saw on friday and sunday for the white Sox. Uh, quick shout out, Jose Abreu, Jim, first player in the majors to reach 100 RBIs. He's now at 101 RBIs, and he has the league lead in RBIs in baseball. Uh, so that's good for one of my futures bets uh, before the season. So keep doing your thing, Jose. And uh, yeah, he's in great shape right now to have 120 plus RBIs if he can continue to carry his hot August into September. Uh, all right, so let's talk about a something that bad happened for the White Sox over the weekend, and we mentioned that great six-run comeback for the White Sox on Friday. Well, there was a reason why the White Sox were down six to nothing in the first inning, and that's Dallas Keuchel. Dallas Keuchel, in his last seven starts, has a 7.34 ERA, and he has just pitched 34 and one-third innings. During that stretch, and he only has 19 strikeouts to 14 walks. He spoke to the Chicago Sun-Times uh, after Saturday, and Keuchel said, quote, I've been the weakest starter in the rotation for much of the year. It's me bringing up the rear. 
I've always been a team first guy. If it doesn't work out, I'll be as mad as whoever else isn't on it. But if you're not getting the job done, you don't expect a spot, end quote. And that comment was the question about Keuchel making the postseason roster. And Jim, I'm glad that Keuchel is self-aware of his current situation because at this moment, Dallas Keuchel shouldn't be pitching the postseason for the White Sox. Yeah, uh, we've been kind of talking about it, you know, trying, I guess, not to focus too heavily on it because the White Sox still have the task at hand at you know finishing the job in the Central. And with a 10-game lead, uh, it seems like, you know, we can start talking about it more certainly and, and the whole talk about lining up pitchers and such, uh, they're in pretty good shape. But yeah, it's been that way for a while, but I think it's more stark now. Like I think like in a in a rotation picture where like say Keuchel has like a mid four ERA and Dylan Cease has a, uh, like a 4.1 ERA. Like we're in the same neighborhood. You get the idea that, you know, Cease is, is more projectable going forward than Keuchel. Uh, but you know, maybe you can just say that's that old veteran crafty lefty magic that, uh, you know, he can get away with and a few others can't like that's, um, you know, that could be a debate, but when he has an ERA of a, with a five and nobody else starts with a four, I think that's when it becomes pretty clear that you're bringing up the rear. And I wrote about it on Sox Machine Sunday morning, just talking about, you know, where Keuchel is in this regard. And, and I guess what he, you know, I guess what the future holds for him if he doesn't make the postseason roster. And, you know, to me, it brings to mind Mark Burley. And just when he was in his final year at Toronto, threw 198 innings, had a sub four ERA, like did everything they wanted him to do during the regular season. But he faded late and they had four better starters and he knew he wasn't throwing the ball well. So that, you know, John Gibbons told him before the you know, final series of the season that he wasn't going to make the postseason roster. He wasn't happy. He said he was going to keep himself in shape to try to get on future postseason rosters if he were needed. But, you know, he said that he looked at the four guys ahead of him and yeah, like there wasn't an opportunity for him to pitch. So he had to accept it. And I think right now Keuchel is seeing the same kind of writing on the wall. Um it's not like say he has the five ERA and the peripherals are great. He just has like one bad inning or he's being left in too long. Like, you know, maybe he's a five plus inning starter instead of a six plus inning starter. And there's an easy way to manage his flaw right now. There isn't, it kind of pops up random times before it was because he had the third time through the order penalty. And then, you know, as we saw on uh, Friday, it was getting hammered immediately. And sure. Like Cesar Hernandez had a misplay that added to his struggles, but um, you know, part of, uh, being a major league pitcher is pitching past that. And he's just so vulnerable to that, that, you know, it becomes a lot harder to, um, you know, when it comes like to a do or die situation or like a game that matters, like you need to have the ability to overcome that kind of adversity. Like that the, um, you know, over the course of 162 games, you have the bad luck, the bad defense game, you, you shrug it off and, and roll with it. But the margin for error is so slim that I just, it doesn't seem like there's a start there for Keuchel to take. Now, I mean, he still needs to be engaged because like injuries happen and you never know if the top four starters will be available and he might be needed, but you know, should everybody finish uh, or cross the finish line in the shape they're in right now? Yeah, it's, it's pretty clear. And I think just, it's about Keuchel, uh, you know, trying to figure out what's going wrong. He says like nothing's wrong physically. And he has some innings to where you understand how his pitches work, but he just like, it seems like location has been off all year. Um, cutters have been too far inside. 
uh, sinkers have been high. Like he isn't getting lefties out, which I think is a big tell in terms of just how his pitches aren't working location wise. So yeah, he's got some things to address. And I think uh, he had some rough luck games here and there where he could maybe point fingers or at least not blame himself for the way his numbers are going. But I think, yeah, the just how the gap is between the fourth and fifth starters in the White Sox rotation. Yeah, it, it the truth is there. Lucas Giolito says that Keuchel is quote-unquote close. And I'm not quite sure what Giolito is hinting at as far as close, as, as far as his uh, 2020 form. And I, Lucas Giolito was recently asked about White Sox fans, and he loves White Sox fans, and even mentioned that maybe White Sox Twitter at times thinks that they know more than the players do in the clubhouse. That's one of these moments where if you know something, Lucas, that you believe that Dallas Keuchel is close to his 2020 form, please do share because what we are seeing on the field is nowhere close to what we saw last year for Dallas Keuchel. Uh, So what do you think the game plan is for Keuchel, at least for the rest of the regular season, Jim? Well, I've seen some some people, you know, I, and for good reason, you know, wondering about whether Reynaldo Lopez should take those starts instead of Keuchel, you know, with home field advantage being somewhat important for the White Sox, uh, that it makes sense to try to win as many games as possible without sacrificing. Um, I, the idea of being putting Lopez in Keuchel's spot means you don't have to ask so much of the remaining starters and you can still get everybody on their regular rotation more or less, but you're not asking for seven innings when they should only throw six, you know, and more or less uh, evens out the responsibility for winning a game. But I think right now Lopez is in a pretty good spot, just how he's being used a a good weapon to come out of the bullpen and be able to give three or four or five innings. Um, He was really impressive on Friday, the way he salvaged that, uh, that game for the White Sox. And it was a well-earned victory. And there could be games like that in the postseason where you don't like how, you know, whoever is pitching and you might want to get them out of there. Lopez is used to coming in right now and, and, and throwing three plus innings and maybe keeping the White Sox in it. So he's somebody I think who maybe Rick Renteria would have loved to have last year when uh, he had Dane Dunning starting and, and just wanted to be able to have a quick hook and have somebody else come in and provide a couple innings. I, I think Garrett Crochet was that guy and he got injured. And so like panic struck, but I think Lopez could be that guy for La Russa in the postseason, being somebody who, if you don't like the way somebody's looking, if they don't look right, um, if if they're behind every hitter, they can't get, uh, they only have a fastball working for them. And I think Lopez could be a guy to bring in just as a different look to save the bullpen, etc. So maybe it makes sense to keep him in that rotation or, or lack of rotation, keep him in that random role where he's thriving rather than move him. But I think for the time being, you know, given that he's still going to be on the team for next year, at least for the start of next year, it just makes sense to try to salvage this year, uh, try to keep him engaged uh, in the event that, uh, you know, somebody gets hurt and he's needed in a postseason start, you know, that that might happen. So I don't think there's any reason for, you know, I think there's every reason for like a teammate like Giolito to try to prop him up and not get people down on him. I think it makes sense to give him the ball every five days, unless it turns into like, you know, if he has another game like the Cubs game where it's a one to two inning shellacking, then that might be the case of, you know, is this useful for the player? But assuming that this was a random uh, thumping and the games from here on out will resemble more of like the, you know, mediocre five innings, I think that's still useful for the White Sox and still useful to see if there's any more in there. And if not, you know, he 
I guess he's not you know on the postseason roster at least initially, and uh, he has to go to work on what his offseason routine is going to be. Keuchel's next start is going to be at Kansas City, so we'll see on how he fares against the Royals. Uh, looking at the rest of the season, if he were to pitch every fifth game, Keuchel would be lined up to pitch the final regular season game for the White Sox, which is going to be at home against Detroit. And if he doesn't pitch in the postseason, I find that to be fitting if he takes on the final game of the regular season, Jim. And I mention this because it allows the White Sox to shuffle up their pitching staff for the American League Divisional Series. And none of the four guys that we're talking about will be pitching in that final day. The White Sox, knock on wood, have the American League Central wrapped up a week, maybe two weeks before the final game of the regular season. And perhaps if it's not Keuchel that makes that start, maybe it's somebody else, maybe a young starting pitcher, or maybe someone like Ronaldo Lopez gets that final day uh, just to get that last start before getting the team prepared for the American League Divisional Series. Uh, but yeah, it's it's bad. It's bad for Dallas Keuchel. And hopefully if Lucas Giolito is right, uh, Keuchel is close to returning to his 2024 Hopefully we see that soon. Now, Keuchel wasn't the only one that had a bad start. Lance Lynn also did not have a good start on Saturday. He gave up seven earned runs in five innings and was very honest about his pitching performance in the postgame conference. It's not the type of performance that Lance Lynn obviously wants, and I doubt he cares much about this topic, but it's also a setback for his Cy Young chances. Garrett Cole is picking up steam for the New York Yankees. So is Nathan Eovaldi for the Boston Red Sox. And we just saw what Robbie Ray did to the White Sox this past week. But the White Sox still have several Cy Young contenders. And with a month left of the season, I figured we would spend a moment here to review where they're at compared to the other great pitchers in the American League and how we would stack their chances right now. So what I would like to do, Jeb, is break it down. Which of these four is maybe a front runner? If we believe that they they are the front runner for the Scion, which of these four would finish in the top three in the Scion voting? Because if you're in the top three, you get to be part of that whole presentation on MLB Network. Who we think could be top five? Who we think would get enough votes to be in the top ten? And who would fall outside? of the top 10 right now. So let's start with Lance Lynn, even though it's been, you know, the last three starts haven't been, let's say consistent. He got ejected for throwing a belt at an umpire uh, when pitch count was (laughs) growing really high at 88 pitches. I love that sentence. (laughs) Maybe that helps his Cy Young chances, Uh, but he was terrific against Toronto and then turns around, he was really bad against the Cubs. Uh, Lynn now at 24 starts this year. He's got a 2.59 ERA. That is still terrific. He's pitched 135 innings. For those that still care about win-loss record, he's 10-4. and four. He's got 152 strikeouts to 42 walks. Where would you rank Lance Lynn right now as far as the Cy Young competition, Jim? I think right now he's top three. All right. Any any specific reason why you would think he's top three? No, just, you know, I, I think 
if Rodan comes back, and, and maybe I'm, I'm spoiling this, maybe I'll save for Rodan, but just like, I think it's, right now they're kind of jockeying for a position. I think Rodan's been better start to start, but he's been, you know, making fewer starts just because of the uh, time he spent on the injured list. So depending on how the White Sox manage him the rest of the way, that could factor in. But, you know, I like um, Garrett Cole's chances right now. I just think he's on the trajectory. I think Robbie Ray has been really impressive too. And just, I think when it comes to Lynn, um, just watching him, it, it's funny, you know, when, when he struggled against the Cubs and Steve Stone saying like, he doesn't have as good command and Jason Benetti's agreeing and I'm watching him. And when I watch Lynn, like a lot of his starts kind of look like that. They kind of look like they're on the fringe of him falling apart or they're on like, you know, he's not putting the ball where he wants to. The catcher has to move in a mitt. He's sweating. He's like just kind of uh, stepping off the mound and rubbing the ball, kind of staring off into space. Uh, he doesn't look necessarily pleased with the way things are going. And then, you know, all of a sudden he's through six. And so I don't exactly know, um, you know, what constitutes a good start from a bad start uh, for Lynn while it's happening. Like, I kind of have a sense, you know, based on if he's you know, really missing bats, but sometimes the missed bats don't show up till later. So I think that's the, maybe the one thing that kind of uh, gives me pause about calling him a front runner or, or liking his chances for the rest of the year is I could see him just, you know, falling into these starts where he has a good start and then a, a so-so start, a good start, you know, mediocre start. And with fewer things on the line for the White Sox in the final month versus, you know, what the Yankees are trying to do in the AL East and what, uh, you know, the, maybe the individual pursuits on Toronto's side where, you know, maybe, you know, Ray can let it eat because he's not pitching for, like, say, a, a team's postseason spot. Uh, you know, maybe I can just see Lynn being a case where just, you know, the White Sox are going to push him too hard because he you know, just might be somebody who could use a breather. Yeah, I have Lance Lynn right now in the top five category. I think I have him number four as far as ranking the American League Cy Young. And this goes into the next pitcher, Carlos Rodon, because I have Carlos Rodon in the top three, Jim. So I think right now my top three would be Garrett Cole, Robbie Ray, and Carlos Rodon for the American League Cy Young. Where do you have Rodon right now as far as uh, if you got Lance Lynn in your top three? So I think we both agree it's Robbie Ray and Garrett Cole as far as the other two in the American League. Where do you have Rodon? I think I have Rodon fourth um, okay. just because of the innings disparity. Uh, four starts, uh, 21 innings. So that's that's where I, where I think, you know, just he hasn't pitched quite enough to measure up with the uh, pitchers who are on a more of like a 180 inning pace. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So you and I are flip-flopping Lynn and Rodon. Yes. Yeah. I think, yeah, we'll see how September goes. If Rodon catches on fire, I think that greatly enhances his chances, but you are right. I mean, voters are going to use that as far as him making four fewer starts than Garrett Cole. If it truly does come down to Garrett Cole and Carlos Rodon for the American League Cy Young, they're going to use that against Rodon. Uh, but the fact that we're talking about Carlos Rodon after what happened in 2020, him being in the top five in the American League Zion is amazing. And I'm curious about these next two guys and how we feel. So let's go with Lucas Giolito. Post-All-Star break, Lucas Giolito has been really good, Jim. And I'm pulling up as far as his number since the uh, the, the post-All-Star game. And in eight starts for the White Sox, Giolito has a 2.70 ERA 
covering 50 innings and he's got 50 strikeouts to 10 walks. That slider is now doing wonders for him. Uh, and he's finally got a third reliable pitch along with his fastball and changeup. And of course, it's improving his season numbers as well. Uh, looking at fan graphs, and this is before fan graphs makes its Monday morning update. So while you are listening to this, if you quickly hurry over to fan graphs to check the dashboard, uh, this may not be. Uh, where Giolito lands up after the Sunday starts. Uh, but for Lucas Giolito now, in 154 innings pitched in 26 starts, he's got a 3.1 war, and that's good enough for eighth, according to Fangraphs, uh, for starting pitchers in the American League. Where do you have Lucas Giolito ranked in the Cy Young race? <laughs> I, I was you know, when you when you posed the uh, rundown for the podcast and and you were thinking you know Giolito I was thinking oh top ten um, you know there there he hasn't been that good but then I realized like well you know Chris Bassett was somebody I think I had to kind of penciled in the top five and uh, unfortunately because of the injury he suffered it, it's you know he's probably he's gonna be hard pressed I think to make up the ground over the the, the time he misses um, and and with him out of there it kind of just changes the entire complexion i think of that top five where like nate Ivaldi's there he's comparable um you know frankie montas has been there he's comparable like giolito's got the strikeouts he's got the innings like the era is the only thing that's really holding him back but as you mentioned uh with him figuring out the slider and then the changeup playing up once uh well once again his last time out like he's got three pitches now you know he's not the uh, he's not the high fastball parachuting changeup guy who you know maybe got by with some uh substances he's not allowed to use anymore like he's he's adjusted the way Garrett Cole also adjusted from the uh, spin rate issue I think you know that speaks to both being very talented pitchers and just needing to make an in-season adjustment based on you know the circumstances changing and both have seemed to do that so yeah, I think it's probably right now based on innings and strikeouts and recognition. Like I would maybe put him fifth. Wow. Okay. See, I have him in top ten. I don't have him in the top five yet. But I think Giolito, the arrow is definitely pointing up. He also uh, like I'm I'm kind of uh, approaching this in terms of like where I think they're going to end up. Sorry. Oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. Like got if got the it. season ended now, I'd put Bassett in the top five still because he wouldn't be losing that time. So. I would say he's like top seven right now. Yeah. But I think by the end of the year, he can be top five. Okay. I, I could buy that. The arrow is definitely pointing up for Lucas Giolito. And uh, for the betting folks, if you go to your sports book app, Lucas Giolito, the odds are 100 to one for him to win the American League Cy Young. Uh, very long shot as far as uh, according to the sports books. However... If he continues to pitch the way that he has, and if he has an incredible run in September, Jim, I mean, he already has, he's already front of mind for the voters. Hey, I have seen Lucas Giolito grow a lot over the last couple of years. He was projected to be the best starting pitcher in the American League. He's starting to pitch like it now. And the White Sox have the best starting pitching staff in the American League. I'm building a narrative here as far as to help Lucas Giolito's case that I do think he'll get enough votes to be in the top five at the end of the season, which is a bit of a surprise uh, for where he was before the All-Star break. But Lucas Giolito has been very good post-All-Star break for the White Sox. And then finally, Dylan Cease. Where do you think 
Dylan Cease will land with with the way that you're doing this as far as exercise. Mm-hmm. Where do you think Dylan Cease will land as far as the American League Cy Young conversation? I still think he's probably outside the top 10, but he would get a vote here or there. See, I think he's going to be top 10. Because for the old school guys, they're going to look at the standard stats and they're going to see Dylan Cease right behind Garrett Cole and Robbie Ray in strikeouts. Hmm. Cease does have 188 strikeouts this season. Uh, And knock on wood, he doesn't get hurt. He's going to eclipse 200 strikeouts. For someone that had a lower strikeout rate than Dallas Keuchel last year, uh, Dylan Cease now is right there with Robbie Ray and Garrett Cole uh, for a chance to win the strikeout t- title in the uh, in the American League, which is a fantastic transformation for Dylan Cease. I think the problem for Cease, though, it's the ERA, right? Mm-hmm. They'll see the strikeouts, and while the ERA is good, it's a 3.92 ERA for Dylan Cease. Garrett Cole and Robbie Ray have sub three ERAs, and they are posting those big strikeout totals. But the way that Dylan Cease has been pitching, uh, just been fantastic. And I know that I mentioned it in a recent podcast and it's got a lot of people talking and at first people were like, that's a terrible idea. And now it's starting to grow on people about Dylan Cease maybe starting game two, uh, perhaps a bit too cute, but there could be reasons why. And quite frankly, if he continues to pitch like he has against Toronto and what we saw this past week in the Cubs, it's really not that far-fetched, Jim. No, I'm, I'm looking at his numbers. I think the one thing that gives me pause is that, you know, based on his profile, his uh, tendency to be inefficient, like he's somebody who could have like a rough four-inning outing, you know, where he gets up like six runs or something like that. It hasn't happened in a long time, but uh, like he could have an outing like that. And because he struggles like pitch past six innings, he doesn't have like the kind of like, you know, seven, eight-inning dominance that allows him like, get his ERA back down. So I think that's the one thing that like keeps me from being too enthused with this case this time around. That's why I think it's holding him back. And, and, you know, he can, he can improve upon that. Like it's uh, if he's top three in strikeouts, like it shows plenty of growth already. Like he's seems to be less uh, reliant on quality of opponent. Like he's had some decent outings, like he had, like, against Toronto and against the Yankees, he, he fared all right. So he's doing a better job of pitching to, um, you know, I guess, living up to, you know, matchups against good teams. Uh, but just, it, I think it's the in-start uh, efficiency and his ability to go deep in games against good teams that maybe gives me a little bit pause. The one thing I will say, though, about the top 10 is usually when you're talking about, like, uh, you know, Cy Young finishes, usually there's, like, a reliever or two who's having a dominant season and, and it ends up getting votes like Liam Hendricks did last year. I don't know if there's a reliever who's getting votes this year. Like, there isn't that guy. So, Cease could be top 10 just because they're all starters. You know, maybe, like, Shohei Otani is the odd one who doesn't have, like, the traditional workload but gets in because he's been so good while pitching and such a great story. But, uh, you know, when you look at the other names, like Zach Ranke seems like an easy top 10. Um, You know, Montas seems like a top 10. Otani seems like a top 10 just because of how cool he is. And I I don't mind that. Like, I think it's cool if he gets support like that. But uh, just when you're trying to fill out the other two names, like, it could be Cease based on the way things are going. Like, you know, Chris Flexen is a weird one. He's not striking anybody out, but he's got a good ERA for Seattle. Um, yeah, it, it's just a weird year in the American League um, to where uh, without any kind of dominant relief uh, 
season like we've seen in the National League with what the Brewers have and what we saw last year with Hendricks. Like, it does open the door for uh, a 10th place finish. Well, Cease has a higher war than Lucas Giolito right now. And I think that helps his case as well, where you're going to see a lot of American League Cy Young voters that are leaning more on war to do the thinking and the work for them while they yeah. are writing down names on the piece of paper. That's why I do think that the White Sox are going to have four of the top 10 in the American League Cy Young. They may not win the Cy Young, and that's all we really remember is who wins the award. And I, I'm sure not... I'm sure a lot of people would have to sit down and think, well, who was second place last year in the American League Cy Young? Uh, you know, it was Bieber, Maeda, and Hinjin Ryu. Uh, Bieber won, so you got a 50-50 shot uh, on who finished in second. But I still think that it's an a- amazing accomplishment and just how different the conversation is now at the end of August compared to what we were talking about at the beginning of March, thinking that the White Sox starting pitching would be the weakness of this team because we just weren't sure about Dylan Cease. He had to make a big step forward to build up more confidence from the fan base and those that cover the White Sox and Carlos Rodon, and especially on how Rodon ended that 2020 year. But as we parse through as far as and how well they've been pitching since the All-Star break and even look at their full season body of work, yeah, you can make the case that all four of these guys, Lance Lynn, Carlos Rodon, Lucas Giolito, and Dylan Cease are going to finish in the top 10 in the American League Cy Young voting. Yeah, I think, you know, looking at baseball reference, Cease is behind Giolito 3.1 to 2.2 in wins above replacement, although that doesn't factor in Cease's start on uh, Sunday. So that'll be going up. So it'll be probably within a rounding error of each other. I think when it comes to the different formulations, like, you know, the, uh, Baseball reference uh, wins above replacement is based on ERA versus um, fan graphs being based on FIP and being more on the run prevention peripherals rather than runs themselves. So it, it's, uh, I think there will be a philosophical battle there. And I think Cease will benefit from, you know, some probably enthusiastic supports by more progressive members of the electorate. And I think some of the more traditional members of the electorate, if his ERA is closer to four than it is to like, 3.5 or 3, uh, I think you might leave them out. Well, it's time to start sending gift baskets to the American League Cy Young voters. I don't have that in my budget. <laughs> For your consideration, here is a fruit basket. Please give votes to Dylan Cease to be in the top 10. Oh, but no, all four of them maybe. have been terrific. <laughs> and hopefully... Maybe Jerry Reinsdorf can send him a ring. Yeah, there you go. Cy Young voter. Uh, <laughs> 2021. <laughs> uh, hopefully this continues and it would be great if Lance Lynn, you know, bounced back from that poor start against the Chicago Cubs. Again, his next start is going to be in Kansas city against the Royals. And if he can get back into rhythm and if Carlos Rodon is at full strength, I think Lynn and Rodon are still the white Sox chances, best chances of winning the American League Cy Young. It may require Garrett Cole to calm down a little bit and Robbie Ray to stop striking out everybody that comes across his path. Uh, but I still think Lynn and Rodon have a chance of winning the American League Cy Young for those that are tracking that and hoping that, like we saw last year with Jose Abreu winning the American League MVP, that the White Sox can have another individual uh, get one of the big awards 
after this season. We are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors, but coming up next, Jim has this week's minor league report, and we preview the next series for the White Sox against the Pittsburgh Pirates. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unifydhealing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes! Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. All right, Meyer League report time. We'll start in Charlotte, where Blake Rutherford is trying to make sure you don't close the door on his prospect status. He used a home series against Durham to pad his power stats, going 7-for-21, with five of those extra hits going for extra bases, three homers and two doubles. He's raised his slugging percentage to 421 on the season, but his OBP is still at 290. On the flip side, Romy Gonzalez has cooled off after a scorching start, going just 4-for-19 with a homer and a double against Durham over six games, but his season is already a success. Pitching-wise, Jimmy Lambert is trying to put a stamp on his season by throwing five strong innings his last time out, with lat surgery shelving Jonathan Stever for the year and Cade McClure getting an idea of why Charlotte is hell for pitchers, Lambert is probably the only guy who can meaningfully change his outlook over the last remaining weeks of the season. 
Down in Birmingham, the Barons' offense went cold over their series with Montgomery. Yolki Cespedes was 1-for-15. Yolbert Sanchez was just 3-for-14. Carlos Perez, 2-for-16. They still managed to split the series with the Biscuits on the strength of some strong pitching performances. Johan Dominguez, Blake Battenfield, and Jason Billis combined to allow two earned runs over 14 innings during their starts, and the bullpen kept Montgomery off the board the rest of the way. Winston-Salem split their series against the Hudson Valley Renegades, but they came out ahead on the offensive side. Luis Miese seems to have a much better handle on high A pitching in his second crack at it this season. After hitting just 155 with the 555 OPS in May, he's hitting 292 with an 889 OPS in August. He slugged 826 alone against Hudson Valley this week, and in a great development, he had more walks than strikeouts, 3-2. As for Kannapolis, they had a chance for a rare series win against Lynchburg, but had to settle for a split after a 15-0 drubbing on Sunday. Brian Ramos busted out of an 0-35 for slump with a pair of three-hit games, and Matthew Thompson and Andrew Dahlquist posted encouraging starts on back-to-back days. The team as a whole still has problems, striking out 19 times on Wednesday and 20 times on Sunday. I spent a few days down in North Carolina last week and shared my first impressions of the Dash and Cannonballers on Sox Machine. I recommend you go through the last few days of Minor Keys posts to see some extremely thorough and laser-precise scouting reports. At the rookie ball level, Colson Montgomery and Wes Cath are holding their own in the Arizona Complex League, but I want to draw your attention to 18-year-old infielder Wilfred Veras, who is younger than either of the recent prep picks and has a 971 OPS over his first professional 31 games. On the pitching side, 18-year-old fifth-round righty Tanner McDougal has 10 strikeouts against just one walk over his first five innings. And the DSL White Sox have seen some of their six-figure signings from the last international class heating up. Norhe Vera has thrown three scoreless outings, striking out seven against zero hits and two walks. Third baseman Victor Cazada has had a couple big performances over the last week. And outfielder Carlos Jimenez homered in each of the last two games. The Chicago White Sox stay at home as they have days off on Monday and Thursday, and I'm sure the players love that, uh, especially for the stretch of games they have had recently to end the month of August. And visiting the White Sox this week on Tuesday and Wednesday are the Pittsburgh Pirates. The Pirates are 47-82, and 82, so they officially clinch a losing record in 2021, in their last 10 games, they are 5-5, five and five, and they split the two games, uh, winning one against the White Sox on June 22nd, which received a worst loss nominee for the White Sox this season, as Garrett Crochet allowed four runs at the bottom of the eighth inning while getting nobody out as the White Sox lost that game. But the White Sox did bounce back to win on June 23rd, 4-3. to three. The pitching probables for this series on Tuesday, August 31st. This is a 7.10 p.m. Central Time start. It's Bryce Wilson, the former Atlanta Brave, going up against Lucas Giolito. And on Wednesday, September 1st at 7.10 p.m. Central Time, it's Mitch Keller, who is, he's got promise, but he's really struggled this season for Pittsburgh, has a 6-plus ERA for the season, and he's going up against Carlos Hernan. Jim, on paper, this seems to be an easy two games for the White Sox, but it really hasn't been the case the last couple of years between the Pirates and the White Sox. The Pirates have been, they play inspiring baseball against the White Sox for some reason, and they're more annoying than anything. Yeah, I would hope that that would maybe uh, end here. Yeah, not, not necessarily because, uh, um, you know, the Pirates are... Not trying like I mean Wilson's had some you know nice outings for the Pirates. He's been you know uh, one of those pitchers who helps a team in the 
uh, Pirates position where you just kind of, you know, you don't mind seeing him uh, show up and, and pitch a game. Like he might give you a chance for five decent innings, helps t- uh, cross the day off the calendar. So, you know, he's somebody worth respect. You don't write him off and say like, bum, same thing with Keller. Like you said, he has promise. He just, he's one of those uh, Pirates pitching prospects who, you know, has kind of stalled the way that, uh, you know, other name brand pitchers, as we've seen, have stalled. So it's, there's an opportunity here for some, you know, for some thumpings, basically. Like, they, they go about their business different ways, Keller and Wilson. But, you know, neither really gets a ton of ground balls. None, you know, they aren't really racking up the strikeouts the way uh, you think might lead to the occasional dominant outing. So you saw the what the White Sox did against the Cubs, you know, Alec Mills aside. And I think, you know, Mills... He pitched a good game, like, and I think he's capable of pitching a good game. He only struck out three. Like the White Sox weren't swinging, and missing randomly. He just kept them off balance. They couldn't get the ball in the air, like as uh, you know the the T-shirt says. <laughs> so uh, they just kind of got lulled into a near Maddox. And I think you know when it comes to what the Pirates are throwing out there, they don't quite have that. You know they you know with uh, Wilson and Keller. So I would expect you know you can't necessarily expect a sweep even two games, but. I would expect a strong showing, you know, especially if they get an off day and they're able to roll out their full lineup, basically uh, the way they want to right field aside. And that was something that the beat reporters asked Tony La Russa after the Cubs series is how is he going to handle the days off? Because we saw both Yohan Makata and Tim Anderson had the Sunday off. You couldn't tell by the final score of that game and how well the White Sox hit. But yeah, Jake Lamb was at third base and Louis Garcia was at shortstop. And Yasmani Grandal, he caught two games and he DH'd the other on Saturday. How do you think Larusa will divvy up days off in the upcoming weeks? Because after this series, they go to Kansas City before they do have this nine-game stretch where they're going to play three in Oakland. And then they come home and they have a weekend series against the Boston Red Sox. So you have six games there against playoff contenders. And then you have the midweek series against the Angels, in which the Angels aren't a postseason team. But the White Sox may have to see Shohei Otani and Mike Trout might be back in the lineup. So that team is a little bit more dangerous than one would think. I think it's going to depend on how the White Sox play in parts. Like we saw that La Russa still gets you know, very irritable when the White Sox don't show up. And, you know, you can write off the occasional uh, dud like the uh, Saturday game. And when you respond with, uh, I guess, when you sandwich it with 17 runs on the front end and and 13 runs behind it, uh, you can just more or less shrug it off as an anomaly. But as we saw with uh, the way they uh, were kind of struggling in that Toronto series or like, uh, you know, midway through that uh, really tough stretch uh, of four consecutive contenders, that, you know, you can see Larusa getting cranky. And when the losing streak reached three, it's, you know, they didn't want to reach four. And I think they're going to have that same uh, impetus where, um, you know, they, they've been really good at avoiding those long losing streaks. They've been, I, I think it's part of the reason why it's been so tough for Cleveland to get any traction is because they have to be pretty selective about which games they win or which games they lose because they can't count the White Sox having that rough, uh, you know, week-long you know, doldrums of, you know, losing six of seven or, you know, losing uh, four consecutive series and, and giving a generous uh, window for Cleveland to get hot. So I, I think that's, uh, that might be what dictates the situation where, you know, if it's a case where they are starting Jake Lamb at third and they have a great game, um, you know, they're, they're 
you know, Larissa might be inspired to, you know, start Moncada back, but then maybe give uh, Luis Robert a day off if he's still getting back up to the speed of things, or you know, give Cesar Hernandez a day off and get you know Garcia there. Like I think that you know the success of the team could dictate uh, how playing time will be dispersed, along with you know actual physical conditions. Like it seems like Anderson is still maybe not out of the woods with this hamstring issue, and maybe Larissa saw a case to get him two days off in a row and wants to use that. Uh, but, you know, should everybody be back up to 100% or 100% enough? Then I think it's more of a matter of how players are looking and how the team's responding as a whole and whether LaRussin feels like he needs to uh, insert a sense of urgency into the proceedings if he feels like the days off are making everybody a little bit too lax. Well, fingers crossed that the White Sox have no problems against the Pirates at home and they pick up these two wins against Pittsburgh and continue to add as far as their divisional lead against Cleveland as they will be wrapping up August on Tuesday and then starting September on Wednesday. And we will, we will be recapping the Pittsburgh series on Sox machine live Thursday night on September 2nd. And we'll also preview the white Sox upcoming series as they go on the road for three games at Kansas city. They have a day off on Monday uh, next Monday again. So they have back-to-back Mondays off before they head to the Coliseum to face the Oakland athletics who really need some wins to keep themselves in the American league wild card. And as far as uh, still be within striking distance of the Houston Astros in the American League West. You guys had questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks, in which all of our questions this week for P.O. Socks come from our Patreon supporters. And as always, guys, thank you so much for your continued support at patreon.com slash Socks Machine. And Jim, the first few questions that we have for in the mailbag uh, coming from our Patreon supporters. Uh, we're going to start with the one from Rob first. And Rob wrote to us, how are you guys feeling about Tony La Russa at this point in the season? Well, before I answer the question, I want to say that we got a couple questions about September call-ups, but with two days off this week, I need to save some ideas for content for the site. So I will be addressing that in posts uh, on Sox Machine. So stay tuned for that. As for Larusa, you know, I think he's, you know, fine slash good. Uh, the big picture stuff is in good shape. Like the lineup is, uh, as we said, like ready for the postseason, even without Adam Engel back. Um, you know, the... Rotation workloads look fine. Uh, Reynaldo Lopez, I think, is like the latest example of somebody stepping up out of nowhere. And I think LaRusse has done a good job of um, creating an environment where such things are possible, whether that's him or whether that's, you know, the players on hand doing it. Like he's ultimately the guy who oversees the entire, I guess, you know, part of his job is managing the clubhouse and managing uh, the things we don't see, the intangibles. And so far, those are all working in his favor. I think the one thing I don't know about him is the bullpen and just how concerning it is when you see like the name brand talent. Like it's, it's been less than the, uh, yeah, the, the, the sum has been less than it's, it's parts all year. Like it's just, uh, you know, when they had the pen is mightier t-shirts for, uh, Liam Hendricks and Aaron Bummer and Evan Marshall early on. And then Bummer was rough and, and, 
Marshall got hurt and Hendricks uh, wasn't quite Liam Hendricks until like the middle of May. Uh, there was that. Then they bring in, you know, Craig Kimbrell and Ryan Tapera, but just in time for, you know, as they show up, Kopech uh, starts getting randomly roughed up. And then, uh, you know, Kimbrell has a really rough introduction. And, you know, it, it's weird just because, you, you know, I mentioned this on Twitter that like Ethan Katz gets all the credit for the rotation, or at least not, I shouldn't say all the credit, but a lot of the credit. Like he's a prominent figure in the rotation success. But when they talk about like the bullpen struggles, He's oddly absent from the conversation. And, you know, that's kind of a natural thing just because, you know, people want Ethan Katz to succeed and he has a success. So it's, you know, it's just a weird um, incongruity or there's some dissonance and wondering like, how can uh, one part of the pitching staff be so great with a new pitching coach? And how can one be lagging so far behind what it did the previous couple of years? Like, I don't exactly know how to work that out myself which is why I maybe don't talk about Ethan Katz much at all individually, just because when it comes to coaches, I just don't really know how much credit to give them. But it is, you know, a a touchy situation right now. And I think it's something that could define him come the postseason. Um, The other thing I think is just how the team finishes. Like last month will be uh, kind of important um, just because it is about setting the White Sox up for the postseason. The one thing I will say is that one of LaRusse's teams uh, the uh, the 2006 Cardinals, they went 12 and 16 in September. They had a lead get whittled down from seven games to one and a half games over the final week of the season, and they ended up winning the World Series as an 83 win game team. So uh, that's another reason why, like, I don't know how much to make of you know how the White Sox fare in September because he's had teams do well before and he's found closers out of nowhere before and solved bullpens with Adam Wainwright a rookie at a moin rate. So, you know, he does have some history that he can lean on when things aren't looking right to, you know, just figure out how to reshape things and, and not be so reliant on a formula that's not working. But, you know, seeing him try to figure out the bullpen formula over the remaining four or five weeks is going to be, I think, the, the biggest task and maybe what defines him over his first year back. It's the eighth inning for me. He needs yeah. the White Sox need to figure out what they're doing in the eighth inning. I was in six seventy the score over the weekend. I'm sure we're going to continue to be asked about Craig Kimbrell, and we're going to answer a question about Kimbrell here in a moment. But yeah, the White Sox and Tony Larusa need to figure out what they want to do in the eighth inning because that's the that's a danger zone right now for the White Sox. They've tried a few different combinations. Recently, some of them have been really good. Garrett Crochet pitched really well in the eighth inning. Some of them have not been good, like Garrett Bummer uh, did not have good eighth innings for the White Sox. So that's the only thing that I think I'm going to be paying attention to in September to see what LaRusa wants to do in the eighth inning of close games. But if this White Sox offense clicks and if they're at full strength going into September, uh, maybe the eighth inning is not all that important for the White Sox and how they get through it. But Rob, thank you so much for writing to us. Our next question comes from Thomas Sheehan. And Thomas wrote to us, love Luis Robert at the plate. But what's up with Robert flipping the ball in the stands almost immediately after catching a ball with no throwing hand transfer? I feel like if this was the NFL there may be an interesting conversation to be had. Thoughts? 
I had a similar reaction to the, I think it was the second one that he did that. His running catch to left center on the warning track, and then he flipped it over into the left center bleachers. And I'm not sure if that's what triggered the huge fight that happened afterwards. But uh, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was pretty quick and smooth. Um, the one thing I will say is that like, it's one thing I like about baseball compared to say football and, and uh, you know, basketball to a lesser degree, but it's kind of similar is that like, I like that baseball is really laid back about what's regarded as a catch. Like I, I think, you know, football, there's been so many games that have uh, hinged on whether something was a catch and you can look at it, you know, talk to five different people and get five different opinions, or maybe like a three, two split. And you're hoping for like a, just, uh, you know, that you can rule by a simple majority. And then they try to like tweak the language to make it easier. And that just makes it more convoluted. But baseball seems like it's pretty simple. Like as long as the ball gets to like the back of the webbing for a fraction of a second, it's a catch. Like whether you're trying to transfer it to your hand to turn a double play, or if like you're a catcher and you try to transfer it to your hand to throw it around the horn for the end of the inning, like basically baseball doesn't, you know, the, the umpires don't hold it against you. It's not something that comes up in the rules. They more or less figure like, that's fine. That's how you catch. Like the ball just has to, it's almost like a sensor in the back of the mitt, like ding, like this catch. And, you know, I think Robert might be, uh, playing like a little bit too close to it. Or, you know, I could see like maybe, uh, you know, a manager trying to seek an edge or, Perhaps like if he catches like say a ball in the warning track in a one run game and flings over the fence, like I could see like a manager coming out and trying to lobby for a random challenge and a solo homer. I don't think it would work, but I could see it like hanging up the game and drawing some attention. So uh, I would say like maybe pick your spots for something like that and make sure that it's really, um, yeah, that, that there is some distance between like him and the wall to where like he can't. Uh, yeah, it's not like right against the wall and it looks like he might have deflected over the fence like we've seen happen already in the game this year for the White Sox. So that's really my only concern is just maybe playing a little bit too close. But otherwise, I, I generally like how uncomplicated the catch rule is. And I think, you know, what Robert does mostly, you know, when he, especially when he catches the ball like on the outfield grass, uh, falls within the spirit of the rules on that. Well, Tom, thank you so much for writing to us. Our next question comes from Andrew Siegel and Andrew wrote to us. What's the greatest concern right now? Michael Kopech, Craig Kimbrell or Tim Anderson's hamstrings. I think, you know, Anderson's health is, you know, I guess the biggest concern when it comes to like just the, the success of the season in the shape of games, but assuming like it's just something like mildly nagging and that the white Sox, you have the luxury of being able to manage, with the lead that they have in the off days coming up. Like it doesn't concern me right now. So the active concern for me would be Kimbrel just because it's such a touchy situation. Like, you know, it's high leverage. It's the whole closer mystique or the whole, uh, you know, the, the, the forgiveness that closers get for failing anytime they're pitching outside of the ninth inning with a margin of, of, you know, basically a, a lead that is less than three runs or, uh, or under three runs. Um, that's one thing that just drives me nuts about closers. And I've stopped fighting the battle just because uh, it doesn't seem to go anywhere and just makes me sound like I'm making demands that, that just, uh, you know, who am I? <laughs> but I just, the, the whole uh, conversation about closers and every time like, oh, Kimbrell can't pitch the eighth or oh, Kimbrell can't pitch in a tie game. Like just, he's getting paid, uh, you know, 16 million and 
he can only succeed in one specific way teammates have to set him up for it. Like it's just a, such a waste of resources and bad training that if that is the case, it's not something that should be encouraged for anybody else in the White Sox or anybody else in baseball, really. It's something that you should phase out. You shouldn't seek to coddle it. You seek to try to either solve it or, you know, I guess endure it. But I don't see a reason to, you know, if, if Liam Hendricks is pitching really well in the ninth inning and you have the luxury of having him appear in the eighth inning and go the rest of the way, like, I don't see a reason to not have him be the last line of defense with the lead. Like, I don't see a reason to disrupt that and hope that, you know, Kimbrell can pitch in the ninth inning better than he's shown in the eighth. Like, that seems like an unnecessary risk to me. It makes sense to pitch Kimbrell in the ninth like when Hendricks has pitched before and you just want to give him a day off. But just to upset the order because of an inning number, uh, and, and given that uh, Kimbrell's had struggles with the Cubs, like when he had the, you know, coming off the delayed season uh, and, and he pitched in the ninth and that didn't necessarily work. Like, he's had delicate moments before that the ninth inning didn't solve. Um, you know, that's a case where I don't necessarily trust that guy to handle safe situations and games you, you want to win, uh, even if they don't need to win them right now. So that's why I'm, I think you should try to keep sending him out in the eighth or, you know, maybe put Ryan Tapera in the eighth for the time being, if it's a game you really want to win and have Kimbrell pitch like in the seventh, like, you know, maybe knock him down, knock uh, the leverage ladder, not, uh, you know, bump him up. Um, but that's, I think, going to be the subject of a lot of arguments if Kimbrell doesn't straighten it out. And that's just always, it can be a distraction. It can be like something that feeds a, a self-defeating narrative and uh, self-fulfilling prophecy. So that's, I think, going to be the toughest thing for Larusa to manage and for uh, the White Sox to manage, especially since he was supposed to be the final piece of the whole thing. And if he turns into like the one of the biggest liabilities, that's a... Uh, just something, you know, kind of like a self, it, I wouldn't call it a self-inflicted error because I think at the time it was a sensible move, but it just becomes a self-inflicted wound that uh, the White Sox have to patch up somehow. I'm I'm 100% with you about the whole Kimbrel has to pitch the ninth inning and he he's only good in safe situations. Why is he pitching when the White Sox are up seven in the ninth inning, of course he's going to give up two home runs to the Cubs. Like, come on. Really? Really? Everyone wants to make a Hall of Fame case for Craig Kimbrell. Really? If this is truly a Hall of Fame closer, and we have seen a Hall of Fame closer in our lifetime, Jim, Kimbrell should be able to pitch whatever inning is necessary and be able to shut it down with the stuff that he has. He hasn't been good with the White Sox. And if he does require to be the closer, man, that's a diva mentality. And I love this trade when the White Sox acquired Craig Kimbrell. Because I'm thinking the White Sox have figured out the eighth inning, Jim. We don't have to worry about the eighth inning anymore. It's August 30th. We're still talking about the damn eighth inning Mm -hmm. (laughs) a month after the trade deadline. Ugh. And yeah, I'm with you. I don't know if anyone could fully trust Kimbrell if he is the closer in the ninth inning. Like, there have been the arguments made, well, Liam Hendricks can be your relief base. Maybe he's the first guy that comes out of the bullpen in the seventh inning and he takes care of the seventh and eighth inning and he hands the ball off to Craig Kimbrell. And I would be okay with that because I have confidence that Hendricks can handle four, five, six outs in an outing. It's still on Craig Kimbrell to get those final three outs. And even with a seven-run cushion, he pitched terrible 
on Friday night against the Chicago Cubs. After he pitched really well against the Blue Jays to uh, close out as far as the series. So I don't know, man. He's an enigma at this moment. And it really helped if he had a strong September so we don't have to keep talking about this. Because Ryan Tapera has been terrific since he's joined the White Sox. Yeah, he had that terrible first impression. Uh, but ever since then, he has been very dependable for the White Sox. It's it's Kimbrell who has not, and that's been a surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when it comes to the Hall of Fame thing, like I just I don't really get the whole Hall of Fame uh, valuation of closers to begin with. Like you know, Mariano Rivera is obvious, um, but that's because he had all that postseason value and all that extra, right. you know, all those uh, you know, games that he saved in the highest of leverage. Like Trevor Hoffman, like kind of sailed in, and I know he's like the all-time saves leader, but it's like he didn't really save an important game ever. <laughs> like his postseason record's pretty sketchy. Like he he blew that uh, final game against Colorado uh, that uh, got them in. Like he wasn't good in All Star games. Like and on big showcases, he was more or less mediocre. And and the, and and after he moved on from San Diego, like San Diego replaced him just fine with Heath Bell. I mean, like even like the Yankees moved on from Mariano Rivera and got a good year out of Rafael Soriano. So I've never understood like the, you know, calling closers hall of famers when they pitch like one inning in situations that uh, perfectly benefit them or like set up for them. Like they, it's, like I get goose gossage and, and, and the guys who would throw three innings or be relief aces. But when it comes to like the one inning guys, especially like Kimbrell, uh, yeah, just he's good. You know, Billy Wagner is good, but just, you know, the when you don't have a whole lot of, um, you know, you don't have like Mariano Rivera's track record in huge games. Like, I just don't know what makes you stand out. So yeah, that's, that's something I roll my eyes at too, but it's, it's delicate right now. And I think, uh, just because Kimbrel like two years ago, you know, and, uh, you know, like the, for the first two years with the Cubs was pretty much more or less lousy. Um, you know, that's not that far behind him to where all of a sudden you can trust him with games you need to win after your best reliever is already used. Yeah, Kimbrell wasn't all that great in 2018 for the Red Sox, looking at his numbers. Yeah, I think Red Sox fans would say he had six saves during the postseason. But I'm looking at 10 and two-thirds innings in the postseason. I'm looking at 10 strikeouts and eight walks. I'm, I'm looking at seven earned runs allowed. Yeah. In in nine games. Like, that's that's not clean. And this is what you're trying to sell to White Sox fans as far as uh well he's gonna be outstanding in the postseason. He he was he was rocky in two thousand eighteen for the Red Sox. He got a World Series reign out of it, and you can point and say he got six saves, so he was able to close out some games, but it, it wasn't exactly smooth. Uh, for Craig Kimbrell and the Boston Red Sox. So, yeah, I I don't think he's a Hall of Famer. Uh, you can make really good... I mean, Mariano Rivera is obviously got the strongest Hall of Fame case ever for a closer. And I thought he was very deserving to be in the Hall of Fame. But regardless, bring it back into 2021, it would really help if Craig Kimbrell got on a roll. And I really hope that it's... It's not true that he can pitch in multiple situations and not just I'm only good when the game's within three runs and it's the ninth inning. Like, Mm -hmm. I would really roll my eyes at that and really bring some tough conversations to have in the offseason about that $16 million option 
for Kimbrell yeah. and how the White Sox handle that because you traded your starting second baseman, Nick Madrigal, for Craig Kimbrell. That was a hefty, hefty price for the trade. And uh, Craig Kimbrell is certainly not living up to his end of the bargain. Uh, are you worried about Michael Kopech? Uh, just, I guess, rookie randomness. Like, just that he hasn't uh, pitched this long in a major league season before. Um, you know, I was watching the stuff today to see if there's any difference, and his stuff looked fine. So I think it's just more of a matter of um, you know, unprecedented workload, unprecedented length of season, uh, you know, stakes, role. Um, you know, that, that's why I think it was important to have, you know, uh, guys like Kimbrell and Tapera come in just so you didn't have to rely on him as the eighth inning guy, just based on his lack of experience. I would like to see more change-ups from Kopech as the slider hasn't been as sharp lately, but I'm not worried about Kopech. I, I would say in a post-game situation, I would still have a lot of confidence in Kopech to throw the sixth or seventh inning mm-hmm. because of just the overall stuff that he's got. And when he is on, I think he's got the best stuff out of all the White Sox pitchers, and he could be dominant for an inning or two, uh, especially this upcoming postseason. So I'm not worried about Kopech. I'm not worried about Tim Anderson's hamstrings. I think Tony LaRusse is doing a really good job managing as far as the workload for Tim Anderson. It's Craig Kimbrell. Big red marker circle around Craig Kimbrell right now as far as the uh, the biggest concern the White Sox have going into September. But Andrew, thank you so much for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions this week to P.O. Sox. If you have a question or topic that you would like to ask us in a future episode of the Sox Machine podcast, the best way of doing so is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters... Uh, They get exclusive content, they get ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website, and they get the first opportunity to purchase Socks Machine swag, and our Patreon supporters also get bonus P.O. Socks as far as their segment on the podcast, so we answer more than just the three questions in P.O. Socks. Sometimes Jim and I answer six, seven questions. We try to answer all the questions that our Patreon supporters uh, supporters submit to us every week. So if you enjoy PO socks and you would like to hear more of the fan questions and our answers to those fan questions, go to patreon.com uh, slash socks machine to sign up today. And uh, speaking of socks machine swag, uh, how are we doing with the socks machine ball caps, Jim? I think I'm down. I'll have to check. I think I'm down to one or two. So be on the lookout uh, for the remaining two caps. And then like, should, should he have missed out on the pre-order period and you missed out on the last two and you really want one, like, let me know, like I can put in a, you know, open up the back order slash pre-order again. I, you know, I'd want to reach a certain number in order to do it, but, uh, you know, it is possible. So if you miss out and you really want one, we can probably make it happen somehow. If we, you know, say hit like a number of you know, like 10 of them I could probably do. So yeah, please let me know if you somehow miss out. All right. Excellent. And you can always follow us on Twitter. We are at Socks Machine. You can follow me on Twitter at Socks Machine underscore Josh. And if you just discovered the Socks Machine podcast, welcome. You can subscribe to the Socks Machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. We also do videos as well on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash Socks Machine. 
The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, a company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid. High amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So... At four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable. It's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at virtual.com slash podcast.